FYI, this podcast contains spoilers. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 424 of the podcast that goes snicked. Snicked, I'm your host, Jason Venable, and today we are throwing around that Magiporn money. <laughs> yeah, we're going to catch up on just a few Wolverine appearances for the last couple weeks. Um, I know I said that the, uh, the flashback episode, flashback, with House of X would be next, and it will be next after this. I just wanted to get a quick kind of a bonus episode in. Um, if nothing else, to kind of keep me on track uh, for the year. I know I'm, you know, lost some ground uh, in in the end of 2020 um, and getting episodes out. So I'm playing a playing a little catch up. And plus, you know, just don't want the the modern books and the current books to uh, stack up too high. Uh, we're going to talk about well, uh, officially four issues. I'll probably mention a couple other things today. Um, but we're going to start off with a Wolverine nine. Then we'll catch up on Enter the Phoenix. Then we'll catch up on King in Black. And then we'll have, uh, since I haven't heard one way or the other, I'm going to go ahead and proceed with the little bonus Gambit's Gumbo uh, with the latest issue of Excalibur. So that's what's on the uh, docket for today. All right. Well, anyway, here we go. Wolverine number nine is going to be what's up first. Um, This is, of course, written by Benjamin Percy. Art by Adam Kubert, colors by Frank Martin, letters by VCs Corey Pettit, and designed by Tom Mueller. And then the cover is by Adam Kubert and Frank Martin. Uh, this is the Asking Price and or Bidding War. And on the cover, we have from like the the perspective of the auctioneer. So we see like the auction stand and then the two hands with the one with a gavel, one pointing out at the audience. And then on auction in front of the auctioneer is a severed Wolverine hand with adamantium claws. Um, and then he's yelling, sold! And there's this giant, of course, audience of people bidding um, with their little placards, which isn't actually how it goes in the issue, but it's a good visual, right? Um, one of the people of note, and not right in the front row, but pretty close, is Kingpin. And... Also, interestingly, there's a guy, I think he's wearing a tux, but it looks almost like a Black Bolt uniform. <laughs> but he doesn't have a cowl on, he has shaggy hair, so I think it's just a rando, but it was kind of funny. Um, I'm trying to see if there's anyone else who's just obvious in the crowd. There's, you know, some different different people, some of whom we'll see in the issue. But um, anyway, also kind of of note on the cover, some of the side items we have... Um, a broken Captain America shield with like some chunks missing. Then we have a Magneto helmet with like a steel bar like through it, like shoved through it. Interesting. Um, but it's a pretty great cover. And the the hand of Wolverine, a clenched fist with claws out, kind of floating in the center of the cover, is a nice touch. And there's some like almost like in the patchwork of the audience behind him. It's just a nice composition. So remember last time in our anniversary issue that uh, some Team X stuff has come back up and Wolverine is going to Magipore as Patch kind of undercover uh, to infiltrate this criminal auction and and to kind of figure out what was stolen and to try to find Maverick. 
So we start off with a really cool page. In fact, the first couple of pages are like this. So one of the things Adam Kubert has done, at least in the 2000s, I'm trying to remember how far back he started doing this layout, but um, it's, it's the 16-panel uh, grid, right? Four rows of four. And then he intersperses scenes. So I, there's a main scene that's in the background, and then random panels that show kind of the current scene. And, and what we have here is... A scene in the background of years ago and some type of jungle and a mission and it's Team X and then we have um, Wolverine and Maverick arguing about where Sabretooth is. Like they pulled out the mission is accomplished but Saint Victor sorry at the time cannot be found or Creed cannot be found and Maverick's asking about it and Wolverine's like well there were a lot of people at that base and they didn't all die during the mission, so, you know, what do you think Sabretooth's doing? And we see a guy run out the door, and he, like, kind of falls down, he's bloody, he's, like, begging for his life, and Sabretooth comes out after him, stalking him, his claws bloody, going for the kill, just, you know, being seditious, vicious, nasty Sabretooth, um, sorry, Creed, at the time, during the Team X days, he was not Sabretooth yet, um, and the next page is the same layout, but the main panels, the, like the main grid is a close-up on Sabretooth's face. And then we have the scenes kind of interspersed, panels interspersed of him walking up on the guy. He's about to kill him, but then we see him get shot through the head. And Maverick had shot him from afar, which pisses Sabretooth right off. Um, and there's a cool thing, because the last panel, so obviously the bottom of the grid is Sabretooth's mouth, and he's grimacing. You know, big old teeth in the last panel is a close-up of his mouth um, you know, from a different perspective you know yelling at the, the his teammates that they're no better no different and Logan kind of says yeah you know we really weren't um, we were blank slates sent on missions sent to kill and um yeah so this brought up a good point for me because I have to kind of go <laughs> sometimes I have to remind myself of things right um I have a lot of passion for Wolverine, and I feel like I have a pretty good bit of knowledge. When I was a kid, that knowledge was more encyclopedic. But over the years, um, you know, between raising children and an affinity for bourbon, <laughs> and you can decide what order those go in, um, some of my encyclopedic knowledge has uh, not held up. So sometimes I have to go remind myself of things and, and look at things. So I was thinking about T-Max. Right, and it's, it's cool because we're actually, you know, pretty recently having kicked off that information in our flashback episode, so that's, that's been fun, kind of a nice correlation, right? That person, Percy has decided to bring that back now, uh, while we're kind of in the heat of it in our 90s stuff. Um, but anyway, so, th so remember guys, the timeline is, uh, you know, Wolverine, Origin, you know, getting his powers going off, doing wars and stuff, you know, living his life, wandering around. And then he eventually gets enlisted or recruited to Team X. Then after Team X, he goes to Weapon X, right? And then, you know, and then he escapes, is found by the Hudsons, does Alpha Flight, and then the X-Men, and the rest is history, right? And, you know, before Team X was the Samurai days and all that fun stuff, right? So I always have to remind myself because... And it's initial onset, and I don't remember at what point Hammer starts hinting at this, and then I think it's picked up by some other writers and uh, even spelled out a little more later. But 
you know, eventually Team X is tied to Weapon X. I think the idea, if I remember right, is that, you know, Team X kind of worked somewhat with Weapon X, right? There were connections there and, and maybe even helped Weapon X find Logan or at least know of his, his existence, right? And so there's some inner workings there. Now, I did not remember. So, in the hammer stories we're doing right now, right, is Wolverine trying to get back some of those memories. And the idea is that Weapon X, during the adamantium process and trying to train him to be a weapon, um, erases memory into implants and all that stuff. Now, I had forgotten... Okay. Reading that in the 90s, my idea was that the T-Max memories were intact but erased or replaced or adjusted by Weapon X. But at some point that was kind of changed, right, to where the Team X actually also did some mental adjustments, mind wiping, etc., to make their operatives better weapons. And Percy is definitely leaning into that idea, right? So not only were Wolverine's memories mucked up by Weapon X, they were also even mucked up before in Team X. And, and even here, and I think because of the connection that comes later, where Team X is kind of joined to the hip, with Weapon X, you know, at a later date and continuity. Um, the idea is that they kind of use some of the exact same practices, right? Not only mind wipes but memory implants as well, and, you know, keeping their agents on a short leash and control and, you know, psychological kind of manipulation, um, you know, to have, quote-unquote, better operatives. And remember after his death and resurrection, you know, Wolverine, of course, is still struggling, um, he hasn't lost all of his memory, but there are still some holes, kind of like Swiss cheese, right? I think Percy has used that analogy before since he kicked off his uh, volume. Um, so the idea is that, you know, Logan was conscious in the Team X days that something was, something was going on, something was wrong. But he couldn't really complain about what Creed was doing because, you know, they were made to be blank, to not have memories, to not have a past. Therefore, with no past is no moral compass. You are literally, if you don't have a past and don't have something that informs your character and your decision, if you're starting fresh, you do what your creator tells you to do, right? You, you, you know, there's always that excuse, right? Uh, and, and fiction and probably real life as well, right? Uh, with military or police, you know, the idea of just following orders, right? Doing the chain of command, not questioning, and, and some of our you know, fictional heroes are people that, that buck that. They see something wrong and maybe they follow orders at first and they realize what's going on and they change their mind and rebel against the orders and that's like, oh, yay! They, they chose, you know, morality and humanity over the system, right? And that's kind of something we celebrate in, in our stories, um, both in real life and in fiction. Um, but if you're a blank slate, you don't have anything to draw on to say, well, this is messed up. I should challenge this. I should fight this. And... But something, Logan says something clicked on that particular day where Sabretooth was just brutally murdering people and Maverick decided to intervene and put a stop to it as opposed to just letting it happen as they normally would. And they decided, you know, they didn't want to just be weapons. They wanted to be people and to be able to make their own decisions. And so here Percy kind of spells out that they did that with a mnemonic device. And they have this phrase um, 
And they started telling themselves that today is a victory over yourself of yesterday, which is a pretty nice phrase, right? I think whether you're a mind wipe secret agent and a experimental project or just a normal person, that's a pretty cool phrase, right? I mean, something I think I can use, right? And hopefully you guys might find some use out of it. That as you're trying to grow in life, trying to be a better person, trying to make better decisions, trying to help your, you know, if you're in the position, trying to help your children, you know, learn how to make good decisions, right? That every day is a chance to have victory over the failures of your previous day. So I thought that was really cool. I really enjoyed what Percy said there. And then the way he leads it into the story, right, is that no matter what mission they went on, what they did, the way they they pulled out of being lost in that and losing themselves was this hope for the this hope for the future, trying to break out of that, and the idea that I'm better and having victory over what my past was, what I was made to do, and I'm going to figure out a way to kind of get past this. And that was kind of how they built hope for a life after Team X. Of course. Wolverine will not get that for a long time, personally, because he will be abducted by, by Weapon X, or, you know, maybe the idea then even sold by Team X to Weapon X, right? Um, so anyway, that's, that's our, kind of our backdrop of the story, right? And what that does also is that ties Wolverine and Maverick even closer together, almost like they had... I say codependent, and that normally has a negative connotation. I, just, I really just mean it in the clinical definition that they depended on each other, right, uh, to get through this time and to help each other and to anchor each other kind of to reality, to their own individual personalities, and to hope of being their own people um, outside of Team X. And so that's really cool because we know that, I mean, ever since Maverick came on the scene and was introduced, we knew he was tied to Logan's past. They had a past. They had a shared connection Sometimes they've been a little more amenable. Sometimes they've been really at odds with each other. Uh, Maverick, you know, pursued being a mercenary, um, you know, past his Team X days and Weapon X days and or Squad X and wherever the X you want to be. Uh, you know, he continued to be a mercenary past that, right? And, you know, by all accounts, while Logan is our lovable, gruff guy, the idea is that Maverick's always kind of been kind of a dick, right? And that's kind of what his character trait was. Um, and so, but what this does, though, is that gives them almost like a brother connection that, you know, whatever disagreements they had, however they've grown apart since then, there's this idea that they kind of saved each other, right? Um, you know, back in the day. And I don't just mean like, oh, on a mission, he shot someone that was going to kill me and save my life. But actually, like, saved each other emotionally and psychologically. And obviously, that's going to come into the story as we continue. But we're going to catch up to now in Madripoor, uh, the room 13 where the auction is. And Patch uses his key, goes in the door. He is stopped by a couple of guys with guns and a metal detector. And they search him. And, of course, you know, he uh, sets off the metal detector and he's like, oh, old surgeries. And, you know, they pat him down. They can't find anything external, right? And so, okay, yeah, the metal is inside. Um, now, how it's not going, I mean, I guess they're just assuming there's some metal in his bones and maybe it's just spread around or the thing is off or whatever. You would think, you know, okay, yeah, oh, man, I have my hip replaced or my knee replaced, have a, have a metal 
pin in there or whatever. Like your whole body's not going to set that off. But <laughs> whatever, we, we get through it. And, you know, he fools them with his adamantium skeleton. But, <laughs> kind of a gross scene. Um, they see the Krakoan bug in his ear. You know, he's been talking to Sage, you know, on the mission and Beast. And, of course, you know, they don't have electronic equipment. They have the Krakoan organic or techno... Or, see, techno-organic has baggage. Uh, bio-organic or bio-tech... Bio-tech... There we go. Biotechnological stuff. Um, so his earpiece is Krakoan technology. And the guy sees it and pulls it out and Patch plays it off and just really gross earwax. <laughs> and they're like, that's disgusting. When um, they say, welcome to the room... You know, there's no way out, um, and, you know, he's, they say something, and Wolverine repeats it, and the guy goes, what's the matter, got wax in your ears? Which always reminds me of UHF, uh, the Weird Al Yankovic movie, you know, this part where the, the dad yells at the, or, yeah, someone yells at someone about having wax in their ears, and I always thought it was really funny. Um, so they're underground in the chamber, we get a nice, something I haven't seen, uh, I've probably seen it. Do not see it as often as we did in the 90s, especially in image books. Uh, shout out to the, uh, on hiatus at least, all the pouches with John Wilson. But um, there's a turn the book on the side, centerfold, double page spread of Patch going into the room. And there's a lot of different people in there, right? Um, terrorist, uh, the sect of X, like the... the uh, the cult, the worship mutants, the Hellfire Kids, Kingpin, uh, some other different people. There's some people that look like Hydra, but not quite right. Almost like Hydra-like Mounties. It's almost what they look like. Um, but then at the bar is the guy, and I meant to look up his name and I forgot to, uh, but from Punisher Euro, not Euro Trip. What was that called? Euro Hit. There's that guy, the big berry guy, and just a burly bear of a man um, with the long red hair and red beard, and one of his arms is like a big Gatling gun. Maybe his name may have actually been Gatling, um, now that I think about it, but I could be wrong, so don't don't yell at me if I'm wrong. But um, he's just drunk as a skunk at the bar, um, and, and kind of is it, he doesn't, he has no part in the story, he's just in a couple of different panels. Um, but yeah, so, um, Patch walks up, gets some bourbon. Uh, the Kingpin is talking about something they're going to bid on. Uh, the Cult of X guys are there. Uh, we have the lady that we saw revealed to be in the wheelchair from the X desk is there. And then the auctioneer shows up. And he talks about some cool items that they have. They have a cyanide tooth from the Black Widow. A prison painting from Jigsaw. A tattered Captain America towel. Cow, not a towel. <laughs> <laughs> Captain America, yeah. He, uh, he dried off his naughty bits with it. Um, no, a cow from Captain America. It's all battered, tattered. Um, a goblin glider. The, <laughs> so, the Spider-Man tombstone from Craven's Last Hut. And then um, some magnet gloves um, from Magnetic Man. And they're all kind of... The idea is they're hovering around. And one of the things that I maybe glossed over and probably should mention... So they said basically that the guys, everyone's, when they went in the room, their room key was loaded with whatever funds that they submitted, right? And then they just can click the key 
to bid on different items. And I almost like the idea, they don't say this explicitly, but the idea is that as these items kind of move around the room, you kind of point at the one you want and click your key and it'll bid. Um, but then the one of the last items is a severed wolverine hand with claws. And of course, obviously the idea is not only can you take these adamantium claws and do some pretty nasty stuff with it, but there's got to be some genetic material, right? And, you know, if there's not enough Wolverine clones running around, you can make make some more. This, of course, makes Logan pretty mad, and he crushes the glass of bourbon in his hand, which makes him bleed. And then we see the the ex-desk lady has some glasses that are, like, identifying people. And from the backside of her glasses, we see that she's identified Patch as Logan. And this sets off an alarm on her uh, instruments, and she's like, uh-oh. But then, interesting, the kingpin um, offers Patch a handkerchief to wipe the blood off his hand, and he does. And then, you would think <laughs> that as much problem, I mean, I know you can't control if you're Pat or Wolverine. You're in a lot of bloody battles. You can't control the fact that you probably have left blood all over this planet and galaxy and universe and other dimensions like your blood is all over the place right you can't help that but you would also think okay i have some knowledge firsthand of some of these clones i don't really want to contribute to that so when i can help it i'm not just gonna throw genetic material around but no he he just drops a handkerchief bloody handkerchief on the floor and someone picks it up and it's a guy in a white suit and a green sleeve, and I'm assuming this is the peacock guy that we've been seeing in the X-Force book, you know, the, the Percy's character, um, kind of court, court of owls-ish, but he's like a peacock. Um, so he grabs it, we uh, see Patch squints, but if the hand, his own hand, messes him up, the last item, the prize item that they expect to really, really sell is Maverick himself, freshly mind-wiped and ready to do whoever wins their bidding, like their own personal mercenary, but not just a mercenary. And not just that he has mutant skills, which he does, that make him a very good agent, but also, because he's a mutant, he has free access to Krakoa, which a lot of these criminals and or terrorists don't have. So the idea is you can... You can get this guy. You can buy Maverick, program him to do what you want, and if you wanted to, like, do some kind of subversive action against Krakoa, maybe a terrorist assault, or or send him to, to wreck havoc, that's your ticket to get through the gate. You know, you can't go if you're just a piddly human. You can buy your very own mutant spy and send him there, guns a blazing, if you wanted to. Um, and just to prove that he is... You know, completely deprogrammed. They have someone attack him, and the auctioneer tells him what to do. He's like, deflect it, don't kill him. And Maverick does just that. Um, and we see everyone, Wolverine tries to buy him, right? Instead of focusing on getting his hand back, he's trying to buy his friend. Um, or, you know, his his information, right? He was sent to retrieve Maverick to kind of figure out, like, why people are looking for Team X stuff. Um, and so, you know, everyone's bidding... But then the auctioneer gets a, a message. And he reveals that Wolverine is in the audience. And we get an awesome panel by Kubert 
a nice double-snicked, uh, you know, the idea that Patch is not supposed to have claws. Patch has the Madripoor identity is just a guy who owns a princess bar and is tough and has some clout in the underworld, but um, is not supposed to be known as Wolverine, but his cover is blown. Um, it's really a funny visual because almost immediately, you know, he's had his hair kind of switched back, right? To not have the Wolverine hair. But he pops his claws and his hair kind of flops out. <laughs> and we have just a really cool panel of someone yelling Wolverine. And then he kind of goes into this fighting stance in his white suit with a double snicked. His bow tie comes undone. It's just, it's a really nice panel. Really cool. And then the uh, Cult of X guys start bowing down like, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. Kingpin kind of smiles. Uh, the ex-desk lady just kind of looks. And then... The auctioneer tells people to subdue Wolverine and they will mind wipe him and sell him as well because that's even better than Maverick, right? Of course, Wolverine's having none of him. He's cutting through people. But someone, the auctioneer, has grabbed the magnet gloves and as Magneto is often done, taking advantage of Wolverine's adamantium skeleton, uh, pulls Wolverine into the air, controls him when he can't really do anything. And Wolverine has a flashback to being on a table at uh, Team X. Um, which is a really nice call because the table kind of has some digital, like, uh, crossword puzzle looking stuff. Um, which is reminiscent of, of what Barry Windsor Smith did on the walls and stuff on Weapon X. And he doesn't want to go back to what he was. He doesn't want to do that ever again. And he remembers, he remembers a time when Maverick... He came back from a rough mission, and Maverick told him the phrase. Uh, he said, Wolverine, that's your name, Wolverine. Listen to me, listen very carefully. Today is a victory over yourself and yesterday. And Wolverine remembers that, and as he's pulled up to the stage, he looks over at Maverick. He can't do anything, and he says, Maverick, do you hear me? Today is a victory over yourself and yesterday. He doesn't own you, just like Team X didn't own us. So consider him a gun... Oh, no, sorry, that's the auctioneer. says, consider Wolverine a gun freshly cleaned. But this wakes Maverick up. Now, it's not com doesn't completely work, because Maverick wakes up, and he pulls a gun on the auctioneer, and he says, I don't know who you are, but we're getting the F out of here. And Wolverine's like, that's my boy. So, so the phrase brought Maverick back, right? Woke him up. But obviously he's still somewhat mind-wiped. He doesn't remember or doesn't at least immediately recall who Wolverine is or maybe parts of his past. But it, he knows this guy helped him and they're going to get together and get out of here and, and not be slaves. So, you know, that's pretty cool. Um, and then uh, there's a text piece at the end where Wolverine talks about his relationship with Maverick and says, um, Maverick is the best kind of bastard. Terrible guy, but loyal to a fault. Um, you know, will help you. Uh, it, there's an old cliche that the person uses here. You know, you can't trust him with your wife, but you can trust him with your life. Um, and it says, you know, a perfect guy to drink beer and dodge bullets with as long as you're on the same side of the bullets. <laughs> so, um, you know, a pretty interesting little, little kind of reference to how he feels about Maverick. Owes him a lot. Doesn't necessarily trust him, but when they're on the same side, you know, he's he's the kind of, you know, like we said earlier, kind of a dick. But he's the kind of dick that if he's on your side, he's a, he's a good asset and a, a loyal, loyal partner. So, anyway, I, 
Man, I really love this issue a lot. Um, and really, if, if the anniversary issue kind of went fast and felt a little thin for an anniversary, like an exercise issue, this one did not feel thin. Uh, first of all, the art is amazing. I mean, Adam Kubert is a, a Wolverine all-star, so no surprises there. And him and White, I'm sorry, him and Martin work really well together. Um, so the art is amazing. The, the different panel layouts, especially the ones like with the big grids, um, is, work really, really well. Um, the big panels, the small panels, it all, all comes together super well. Um, really like what Percy is doing. I mean, I've, I've loved him a lot on the Wolverine solo book, and this is no exception. Um, just very interesting. Uh, it's touching. It has some emotional weight. Obviously, it has action, and it propels the story forward. I'm interested to see what he does with Wolverine and Maverick after this, you know, as the story builds to a conclusion. Um and yeah, I enjoyed the heck out of this issue. So I'm going to give it a very sturdy 6 out of 6 claws. I, I liked it a lot. Quite a bit. You can tell by how much time I spent on it. <laughs> and we're not going to spend near that amount of time on the rest of the comics. Um, so next up is Avengers 42, which is Be Like Fire, uh, Part 3 of Enter the Phoenix, uh, which is written by Jason Aaron. Uh, this time the art is by... Luca Maresca, colors by David Curiel, letters by VCs Corey Pettit, woohoo. And then the cover is by Lino Francis Yu and Sunny Go, um, and it's just our, our Avengers and their Phoenix designs. It's fine. Alright, so remember our heroes are in this kind of Enter the Dragon, right? Type tournament, uh, trapped in the white hot room of the Phoenix, and the Phoenix can pit them against each other to see who's going to wield. The Phoenix Force, of course, Namor wants it. No one else really does. Um, in fact, Wolverine doesn't really want anyone to have it, especially a non-mutant. Uh, which, that motivation is a little iffy, right? Like, I get, like, saying, oh, we don't want anyone to have this. We know how destructive it is. But it comes across, it came across previously a little bit, and then definitely this issue is almost like, well, no, I mean, the Phoenix needs to stay with mutants. It's supposed to be a mutant thing. Like, you can't take that from us, which is, that's kind of weak sauce, I think. But, um, anyway, we start off, the best part of this issue is why Namor is fighting Echo. There's almost like a folk tale told of Namor, um, from, but it's from, it's in first person, so it makes it a little, a little weird to tell a folk tale about yourself, but it's about the time that when he was barely old enough to swim, so I'm picturing like a four or five-year-old Namor, and he gets this big old shark and, and throws it up on the rocks and kills it and watches it die. And his mom comes and catches him and says, why did you do that? And he's like, it bit me, and you know, which was a lie. And, and she's like, well, we don't, if we kill without reason, like without using it for food or, or supplies, um, we're just like the surface dwellers, just killing randomly for entertainment and sport. That's not how Atlanteans do things. And um, so he felt a little dejected, but not really, because he wanted to prove his strength. And he kind of, you know, that's when he kind of says, well, it did bite me. And, and she, his mom's like, well, even if it did, you can't kill everything that bites you. It'll just be us. <laughs> and he's like, well, well, which, you know, my, that sounds familiar. That's all over my four-year-old. That Everything is counteracted by... But, well, 
So um, that's kind of the inflection I'm giving it. But um, Benjamin says, well, if I make ex enough examples, things will quit biting me. <laughs> They'll learn to, to fear and respect Namor. And his mom kind of like, okay, I get that. Future king. Um, yeah, all right. Building up your mythology. But, she says, but, 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 you have to take the shark down and, and go bury it at the bottom of the ocean. So he does, and he talks about how it made him cry, like his connection to the life. Um, he was humbled. And he still felt like he needed to prove himself, right? And he still hoped it made a good example, but it did kind of seem like a senseless loss of life. He says he cried so many tears, it made the tides rise, which that felt very, like, mythological to me, right? Uh, that's what Jason Aaron can be good at, is that kind of stuff, right? Um, you know, you know, we, there's all these myths, you know, Greek, Native American, old world cultures about you know, all these stories and myths. They're like, oh, this, the sun is a chariot, or, you know fun stuff that's really entertaining and fun to read and, and nice to, to dive into and we have this idea that has never really been touched on and probably won't ever be again but that the changing of the tides is because like the sea king cried and made the water level rise that's a that's, that's a really interesting nugget of an idea um you don't know if we really need that kind of continued myth in marvel lore but it was fun anyway namor um beats echo and goes back victorious and um, Captain America can, has to fight Shang-Chi and says, no, you may not want this. I know you're, you know, have been a pacifist, but of all of us here, you are probably most able to control the Phoenix with your, you know, meditation and, and, and Chi and inner peace and all that stuff. And, you know, use it to do something constructive. So I think, you know, you may not want this, but if someone here has to get it, maybe you should think about whether it should be you or not. And he's kind of like, okay, yeah, and the the deadly fist of the phoenix. Okay. Um, sorry, deadly hands, which is which is interesting because I'm in the middle of reading in my 70s read-through, The Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, which has been pretty enjoyable for the most part. Um, so yeah, that's cool. And then go back to the room, and that's where everyone says, well, Namor wants this, and he's winning his fights. Well, the rest of us are just kind of trying to figure this out, and that's when Wolverine pops up and says, no, it's got to stay with the mutant. Um, and then we figure out that people on Earth are trying to to fight the Phoenix and, and maybe, like, trap it somehow. Uh, like, Brew and Moon Girl are, are working on something to kind of, like, track the energy and see if they can, can get it to leave. And then Iron Man goes riding on Captain Marvel, like pissing it off. And then Thor shows up, and he's gonna fight it. And you know, then we see some more fighting um, on the inside. Uh, She-Hulk and uh, Valkyrie are gonna be the next one, and then Wolverine and Black Panther um, are gonna be the next one. And Wolverine kind of says. This part is better. It's better motivation than just, oh, a mutant should have it. He talks about he's the guy that's supposed to take bullets. You know, with his healing factor and his attitude, like, he protects his X-Men, his X-Family, everyone, by getting between them and the violence because he can handle it. He can take it. He can come back from it. He can survive it. And he kind of talks about here, which is much more Wolverine, I think, than saying... Oh, well, the Phoenix always picks mutants, so no fair. 
And that, if that was wheat sauce, and this is much better, um, with Wolverine saying, you know, of all the people here, I'm going to take this bullet because I'm familiar with it. You know, I've done, I've, I've had tons of comics about the Phoenix, so I'm good. Um, and so, yeah, his intention is, you know, while Black Panther seems to be favored by the Phoenix power in Namor, Wolverine wants to kind of put his cow in the ring as well um, and definitely make a play to, to be the winner of this contest, which, you know, I still think that's maybe a little bit of a, of a red herring, right? Because the assumption would be Jason Aaron's writing this. He already wrote a future that has a Phoenix Logan. So, I mean, obviously he's got to win, right? And so I think that's maybe too obvious. But I, I don't know. I really enjoyed... It. I enjoyed this last part. and it, it makes it even weirder that he started off in the issue being kind of whiny about it. Um, the inconsistency there is weird. But then we get a bombshell, which I am still trying to decide if I like it or not. Um, so Thor finally kind of breaks into the Phoenix Force, and Phoenix is like, I don't want to fight you. It's time to talk to you about your origins and your dad's son. So the idea is that, you know, we've had the prehistoric Avengers, and we know that Odin and Phoenix had a love affair. So even though we already know in theory, who Thor's mom is. Uh, if Jason Aaron follows this through in the next couple issues, the idea then is that the Phoenix Force, or the prehistoric Phoenix host, was Thor's mother. And I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I don't like it, but I definitely don't know if I like it or not. Um, so I talked about kind of Wolverine in this issue when, in, uh, here on the podcast and go, Snick, that's pretty important to talk about. Um, I feel like I've made, you know, my, my thoughts pretty well developed on that. You know, talking about the Thor thing, well, first of all, it's weird because she has like a fur skirt, but she has a belt that rides very low and then a tuft of skirt sticking out from the top of it, which and it's the same color as her hair. <laughs> I'm not trying to be gross, but the art is very odd-looking. Um... Because she's in her, like, fur coat, and she has, like, her orange bikini on and her orange hair. And she has, like, an orange fur dress, but it's really, really low on her hips. And then a black belt across the top, and there's a piece of fur sticking out the top that reminds me of a, that Black Crows album with the American bikini, but, like, the, the, the short and curlies are coming out on top of it. <laughs> it kind of looks like that. Um, anyway, so... All right, here's, here's my thoughts on Phoenix being Thor's mom. I have not really enjoyed Jason Aaron's Avengers run, for the most part. I found it to be kind of weak in a lot of ways. Um, it hasn't really been for me. And please, if you're loving it, man, continue to love it. I'm glad. It just hasn't really been my flavor. Now, I like Jason Aaron a lot in general. I kind of see his Avengers, this you know, this volume, this, wow, 42 issues now that he's done. Kind of an aberration for him, which I guess at 42 issues, you can't really say that. But <laughs> anyway, that's how I'm choosing to look at it. That is my podcast. Um, you know, but I haven't really enjoyed his Avengers run. So on the one hand, I kind of think this is just him doing something else kind of dumb and a kind of some, and a kind of dumb run. And I don't know if it makes sense or if it is necessary or if it really lends 
to Thor's story. I'm not sure if I like the idea that he is innately a descendant of the Phoenix Force and has that. I'd rather Thor just be Thor. It's kind of, you know, kind of goes back to the whole thing that I have complained about often. You don't need to make these things be so obvious and connected all the time. Um, you know, prime example that I talk about a lot. Nightcrawler. I don't like that his dad is a demon and that's why he looks like a demon. I would rather him have just randomly than a blue furry elf that has d- demonic features that contradicts his personality of faith, right? That complexity. Um, I prefer that to be more random and organic than, oh, I'm writer ABC, Nightcrawler. Oh, you know, come to think of it, was that Jason Aaron too? Was he the first person to do that? I know he ta- I know he did a big story about it in Amazing X-Men. I can't remember, but I think he was already determined to be his dad before that. But he definitely expanded it. Well, there you go, Jason Aaron. Okay, that's two big strikes. <laughs> but anyway, I, I don't like the idea that, oh, he, he looks like a demon, so I'm going to make his dad a demon. That explains his look. And we have to have a reason. Everything has to have a reason. And I don't like that everything has to have a reason. I, I like some reasons. I don't like everything. Anyway, the, so I don't know if I like the idea that the Thor, some part of his magnificent power has to be explained by a force outside of just being as guardian, right? Like he has an imbued Phoenix power. And that doesn't mean that he couldn't go on to do some cool stuff being an Asgardian with some some Phoenix power in him. I just don't know if, it, if Thor needs that. Now, the other flip side of the coin. While I have not loved his Avengers run, almost to an issue, I have never been disappointed in any of Jason Aaron's Thor work. And this is Thor. Not being on the book, I feel like if he has anything else he wants to do with Thor, this is the only place he can do it. Um, And maybe this is a natural extension of... You know, I know he said he, he had finished his Thor story and said everything he wanted to say, but maybe he thought of something else he wanted to say, and he's choosing to do it in this book, and maybe it'll be better than what he's done in Avengers so far if it focuses on Thor. Um, so, I don't know. So, in that regard, I'm kind of on the fence, right? Because I both trust and don't trust Jason Aaron <laughs> to make this really cool and badass, and it could be, or it could be lame, and I just don't know. Um, the art was definitely a letdown from Javier Garon, but it wasn't bad. I mean, it was pretty good. It's not amazing. The color work is the shining star. Uh, Curiel's colors on this are probably the best part of the book visually. Um, but the art's fine. Uh, so, it's weird. It's a weird book. I haven't really enjoyed this story. I didn't really want another tournament right away. Um, but there's a lot to like and not like, right? The Wolverine being kind of dumb and then being kind of awesome, all in the same issue. Um, not knowing how I feel about Thor. I like Captain America, like picking Shang-Chi as the most likely candidate to be a good Phoenix host that could actually do something good with it. Um, so all in all, it's going to all kind of wash out to three out of six claws for Avengers 42. So that's uh, Enter the Phoenix. Next, let's go to King in Black. We're going to talk just briefly about Venom 33, because there is a one panel of Wolverine. 
<laughs> in there. So this is, uh, of course, a King in Black tie-in, Agents Venom, uh, written by Donnie Cates, art by Yvonne Quello, uh, art, I'm sorry, color by Jesus Arbertov, uh, letters by VCs Clayton Cowles, and then uh, Yvonne and Jesus do the cover. This is a really great cover. It's a really great horror cover. So we have Eddie yelling at the camera close up, but his face is almost coming out of the Venom suit, right? Like this, the, the Venom mouth is opening to allow Eddie's face to come out of the Venom mouth. But then coming out of Eddie's mouth, trying to climb and claw his way out, is Noel. Um, it's a it would make a great poster for a horror movie. Um, it looks pretty great. It's pretty awesome. And the art is, is awesome in this book. So, I was kind of liking King of Black more than I thought I would. Then issue three came along and it just kind of felt standard. But then this issue has a lot more of the emotional beats that I was loving in the King of Black originally, right? I won't belabor it, but it's kind of like, I don't know, I was interested in the Noel story, but very interested in the father-son dynamics and the emotional relationships and the character beats that have happened in the event so far. And that was kind of missing from part three, I thought. But here in this one, it's, it's full of it. Um, we start off with Spider-Man talking to Dylan and basically saying, I'm going to tell you something no one ever told me because I've dealt with loss, right? I've, I've lost my parents. And remember right now, the, the assumption on the surface is that Eddie Brock has died. And not only that, but he was killed by Dylan. And Dylan feels very responsible because he's trying to separate Noel's influence from his dad and by using his powers and that put him in cardiac arrest. Um, but Spider-Man is saying, basically, I've lost a lot. You know, my parents, girlfriends, lovers, you know, friends in the, in the hero biz. Um... And yeah, you know, everyone keeps saying we need you, your powers can help us, but it's okay to be scared, and honestly, it's okay if you want to sit this out, right? And, and I can't, I won't read it, I won't try to repeat all of it, but Kate's really gives a good, strong message about life, and how it can be kind of crappy, and, you know, it always knocks us down, and, you know, it's kind of measured by how we get up, but we don't always have to get up right away. Right? Sometimes we can get hurt really bad and we need that time to heal and to repair ourselves before we get up and try to fight again. And it's just a very moving speech by Spider-Man. And I think it's really crucial that it comes from Spider-Man, right? And he says, you know, he promised Eddie to keep Dylan safe. And part of keeping him safe is that he's not going to automatically just throw him out into this fight, right? But he's also not going to take that away from Dylan, Right? He's going to let Dylan have the choice, but he wants Dylan to know that it's okay if the choice is, I'm going to sit this out. Spider-Man says, you know what? We have faced this kind of thing over and over and over again in the Marvel Universe, and we always come out on top, and we will come out on top with or without you. So if you need to like take a time out and not go out here and do this and try to fight Noel then that's okay. He's basically giving him permission to just grieve and take time to grieve and not have to be the hero right away. But of course, the other heroes are kind of pressuring him. They ask him, and Dylan's like, no, no, I need to do this. I need to go hurt something. Um, it's a really nice scene. It really is. Uh, it plays really well. The art is fantastic. Um, I don't know, and just Spider-Man is kind of this 
wiser uncle slash older brother to Dylan and gives him really good advice. The advice is really solid. Um, and then, but ultimately leaves it up to Dylan and Dylan decides, you know what, I do want to go and we know that he does because we've already seen that in uh, issue three in King of Black that the Wolverine and Spider-Man escort him out to the battle. Um, so then we go back inside the hive mind where this Rex guy who I don't know and then Flash and Eddie are in there and they're trying to figure out what to do and Eddie can feel Noel getting hurt and he realizes this is his son and we get an awesome double, play, double page splash page of Dylan separating the heroes from the symbiotes um, and that's where we get our Wolverine cameo he's stabbing a symbiote <laughs> of course um, but Dylan pulling now we already saw him separate Captain America and take the shield but here we get a nice double page splash of that scene and it looks amazing. Quello is an all-star. Like his art has gone from something I enjoy to something I just adore. Um, it's so so good. Um, and inside the hive, we see these suspended heroes that were covered in goo suddenly not be covered with goo, and Eddie recognizes it's his son. And he also recognizes his little doorways in the hive mind. And he says, "This is where Noel's getting hurt. These are his wounds. Let's go through." <laughs> and they do. They see what they call the God Hive. Now, I'm not completely sure I'm following along all of this, but it's fine. I have not been reading Venom regularly, so it's okay. But so there's this inner hive where the symbiotes are created, and we see some that are captured, and they're the ones that have been cut off from the hive and Noel has not control over anymore. And so Flash says, okay, my mission is. I'm going to go set them free, and we can use them, and even turn them into anti-venom. There's a cool scene where he does that, and he takes over a dragon. We get like a white anti-venom dragon. It looks great. Um, and then we we get a little background on Noel that I didn't know. So I knew he had these like pet celestials. I didn't realize that you know he had beheaded a celestial, and that head, that floating head, became the head that was nowhere. So, okay, here's the deal. <laughs> I'm not saying this is Kate's fault, because he didn't choose for me to not read the stories leading up to this. I mean, he wrote them. They were there. I didn't read them, and that's somewhat on me. But, and, and honestly, you know, reading a Venom book, the tie-in is that Noel ties into the symbiosis, into Venom. That's the hook for most of the people who are going to read this book. The hook for me, that I am finding out for the first time now, <laughs> is that Noel, I mean, I knew he was a cosmic entity, he was a space, he was a god from space, from, you know, universal from the dawn of time, like, all that, but how many times have we seen that? But, being a, a big and growing Marvel Cosmic fan, tying him more directly into some elements I already knew. Now, I know, I know. If Dan and Georgie from Escalros were here right now, they would say it's just a cheap uh, nostalgia pool to use something that exists and people know and trying to give your character more substance. And probably not entirely wrong, but for me, it made me like Noah a little more, right? Because we find out that that's where he made the necro sword was inside the the head of the celestial and then you know left it and it became nowhere and this outlaw outpost and all the stuff that it's known for now you know later right but i thought that was really cool and it made me kind of you know to me not being a huge venom fan 
Noel's connection to the symbiotes alone, it's not really enough for me to go, yeah, awesome! But, and this happened a little bit with Silver Surfer Black. I just, as visually awesome as that book was, the story didn't really do a lot for me. So that connection, and again, all that really did that I remember was set Noel up as like this ancient evil. Didn't necessarily tie him into like the known cosmic entities. So if that's where we're going, and it's probably not, but that's more interesting to me. It makes me like the character a little more. But anyway, that's still really, to me, not the crux. Uh, at the end, Noel takes over Rex. I don't know if he's just a symbiotic entity and not really a person, but he like transforms, or maybe he's, he's been Noel the whole time. He transfers, tra- I can't talk, transforms into Noel, grabs Eddie Brock by the throat, hangs him over a new cliff and says, ah, deja vu, because, you know, he threw him off the Empire State Building at the beginning of the story. Alright, the art is awesome. I like Noel a little bit more, but that's not really why I love this issue. The emotional connections between Spider-Man and Dylan, and then that, that speech he gives, it's if you're not even if you're not reading this story, if you just want an idea of kind of the hero's choice, buy this issue or download it or whatever and read the first scene between Spider-Man and Dylan. It is powerful, powerful stuff. Um, and also um, the interaction. I didn't talk as much about it, but the interaction between Flash and Eddie in the Hive Mind is really great. There's a whole whole scene where Eddie's like, "I'm not a hero, and you're the hero, Flash." And Flash is like, well, yeah, I am, but I have stuff in my past I don't like either. And also, it's not a comparison, right? If you don't feel like you can stand up, you know, to Spider-Man and Captain America, you don't have to. But all this, like, am I a good guy, am I a bad guy? Like, you don't need to wrestle with that. You're a guy who's trying to fight evil to save the universe, and you're a dad going after his son. You're a hero. <laughs> and I being a dad. I also enjoyed that. I I won't lie. There's a lot of this story and a lot of what I like when I do enjoy the Venom book is tied in to a connection I have as a father of three boys. Um, I would be dishonest and disingenuous to try to separate that emotional impact from the way I read this book. I can't do it. It's not any attempt to pretend to do that would be dishonest and just I'm not going to try to pull the sheep over y'all's eye, or the wool. <laughs> the whole sheep! I'm going to pull the whole sheep over your head because I'm a dastardly bastard. Um, no, but I mean, I cannot separate my feelings about parenting and my children from stories about fathers and sons. I just, I can't. I'm going to filter that through my own experience. That's kind of what we do, right? So I'm not trying to be, like academically critical here. I'm being emotionally critical, and it works. This story works for me. It just, it does. You combine that, I think I probably even, I'm a Stegman fan for the most part. I think Quello's art, to me right now, I enjoy it more than I enjoy Stegman's art. Um, It's it's just really clean. I hope maybe, I know that Cates uh, and Stegman are leaving their you know, even Quello, even though he's been the artist on the Venom solo book for a little while, uh, Stegman started that with Cage, and of course has been doing the bigger Venom story in King of Black still. Um, I know they both said, you know, after Venom 200, which uh, this is Legacy 198, so in a couple of issues, 
they'll be doing their Venom Swan song. I don't know if Quello is lined up to stay on the book with a new writer. I would love for him to come do something in the X-Universe. I would. That would just tickle my fancy so much. Um, just tickle, tickle, tickle. Um, anyway, yeah, I'm going to give this book... Um, you know what? I think this is my favorite book so far. My favorite chapter of the whole of the whole thing. Um, I'm going to go ahead and give it 6 out of 6 claws. There you go. Surprise, surprise. Surprise me. But I really love this issue. I thought it was really, really good. It even kind of made me like the overall story a little more. But, but that's... Anyway, I'm repeating myself too much. Great book. Great comic. 6 out of 6 claws. All right. So last up, we're going to have some bonus Gambit's Gumbo and Excalibur number 17. This is Other Lives and Dimensions, or QE3, <laughs> written by Teeny Howard, art by Marcus Toe, colors by Eric Arseniega, letters by V.C. Zariana Meyer, uh, designed by Tom Mueller, and then cover by Mahmoud Azrar and Matthew Wilson. And on the cover, we have a very British... Uh, frowning uh, Betsy Captain Britain on the throne as the Queen of England. And she's scowling and just looking very Britishly proper and um, not pretentious, but uh, patronizing. <laughs> like, always looking at the reader like, you're beneath me. <laughs> so that's kind of great. Um, Alright, so we find out that on our Earth uh, the Coven of Akaba, which are uh, these these magic wielders, have come to Peter Wilson, Peter Wilson, uh, Pete Wisdom, um, and said, "Hey, Captain Britain is missing. We were kind of upset that it was a mutant, right? We don't want that. And you're a mutant, so go to Krakoa and figure out what's going on. Also, we can't find Brian, who we want to be Captain Britain again. So we're really upset, and we want you to fix it." Um, Pete is very snarky. Oh, and they also get mad because they have these pictures of that brief scene where uh, Jamie made alternate versions of the Excalibur team as Captains Britain. So Jubilee, Gambit, Rogue, and um, uh, uh, Richter. Sorry. <laughs> um, as Captains Britain. And of course, this pisses the British people right off. I won't... I, I would defer to Dan if he's listening. He can say... I, Howard's definitely trying to make this sound really British. I don't know how authentic it is, because I'm not British. Um, but it has like a British TV kind of feel. I'll say that. Um, yeah, so then we see... So Betsy is not displaced in an alternate dimension. Her soul has overridden the Betsy that's in this dimension. And in this dimension... Um, England is like what Krakoa is. Like, it's this big safe haven for mutants. Uh, mutants immigrate there. Um, you know, Betsy has become the queen. Pete Wisdom is the prime minister, so mutants are in both seats of power. Um, and then Angel is her lover, but realizes that this is not his Betsy. And then but Betsy's like, oh, but I was a lover with Angel on my universe, but in a different body. It gets complicated. But she has this document, this like omniversal emergency plan, where Betsy or Queen Elizabeth the Third um, in this universe 
I said, you know, if I ever get replaced, uh, don't ask too many questions, just try to get home. <laughs> this is weird. Why you would have that document, I don't know. Um, but basically it says, you know, I know you're probably a Captain Britain too, just like I was. Um, so, you know, honor the captain, captaincy? Is that captaincy? I don't know what that noun is. Um, but honor that by, you know, not mucking up my universe and trying to get back to your own. And so she does, and she figures out, okay, we need to go to the lighthouse so I can go home, because the lighthouse is always connected to other world no matter what. And Warren's like, okay, well, I can't take you, but we have to sneak you in. And I have just the person, my ex-wife, Quanin. And so we meet Quanin and very sharply dressed, and she's going to sneak uh, Betsy, who is very publicly recognized as the queen in this universe, into the lighthouse so she can send her spirit home. Um, back on Krakoa, uh, we have a nice interaction between Jubilee and Gambit about cats. She says, I believe all the old wives' tales are evil. They poop in a box. And Gambit's like, no, they really do poop in a box. And like any rational person who would rather own a dog, like is proper, <laughs> she says, why? Why would I keep a box of poop? <laughs> Just kidding, cat people. I I respect you as human beings. Um, <laughs> I just, I just. Anyway, yeah. So um, then Pete Wizard kind of stumbles through a gate into Krakoa, and people are like, "Uh, what are you doing here?" And he's like, "I'm going to the White House." And she, they're like, "No, we're moving into the White House because we feel like when Betsy comes back, that's where she'll go." So that's why we're taking all our cats over there. <laughs> and Rogue's like, "Yeah, that's my new apartment." And he's like, "Well." But these witches are going there too, and they're really upset. And they're the British people are like gonna replace Betsy's power as Captain Britain or something, and they don't like them as a mutant and blah blah blah. And just lots of snarkiness. Uh, and there's oh, I missed a part because uh, uh, wisdom refers to Krakoa as Margaritaville and says, Well, if I'm gonna go, I'm gonna have a proper pint first, which is really fun. But yeah, so they decide they're going to go to the lighthouse together and try to stop the witches. So we go back to the other universe where Quanin has changed into her traditional sidewalk uniform and Betsy just has on like kind of a pink ninja suit, I guess, or a purple ninja suit. Um, and so they go in. They go into the, the building and there's a, kind of an awkward conversation where Betsy's trying to... She doesn't want to ask questions, but she wants uh, Quanin to know about kind of the body swap on their universe, which obviously she knows nothing about here on this universe. It obviously did not happen that way. Um, and she's trying to apologize, but I'm trying to remember now if she's apologized to Arquan or not, because it feels like that would be the more appropriate apology. <laughs> Instead of apologizing to a version that has not been impacted by this at all. Um, that's kind of weird and unnecessarily awkward. Um, then we go, we're fighting the witches, we get a really cool uh, scene of Gambit throwing a handful of playing cards with a zip-zip, which I thought was really fun. Um, and yeah, they fight the witches, Their Richter's kind of not doing so hot, um, Jubilee's not doing so hot, but then we, you know, continue to see Quanin uh, and Elizabeth run through the base. Oh, the lighthouse is not an actual lighthouse, that's another difference. It got torn down because it was dilapidated and replaced with this big intelligence base. It's called the Lighthouse. Um, so yeah, they're working their way through the bowels of that. They find the 
omniversal gate that goes to the other world. And while Betsy's trying to apologize, Quan is like, enough, enough, and literally pushes her in to the gate. Um, and we get a big rumble, like an earthquake, and Richard's like, that's not me. <laughs> and a big psionic scream for help, and a light from the lighthouse, a purple pinkish light, and a splash in the water, and Betsy comes out and collapses. Um, and then Rogue's like, all right, you want a Braddock to claim this tower? Here you go, we got one. Um, so yeah, um, the art is great. I like it a lot. I like Toe a lot. Uh, I really like Pete Wisdom here. Um, kind of his just British snarkiness, his contempt for authority. Um, I like the idea... Uh, I liked a lot of this, to be honest. The parts I didn't like were... I understand Betsy's motivation. You know, seeing a face of someone she has hurt deeply and trying to apologize for that hurt. I can understand that from her side, but she has to realize that, in effect, her apology is only causing more pain to someone who has not experienced the situation. Um, Hopefully, this will lead to her having some more intentional conversation with our quantum, right, when she gets back home. Um, and while I enjoyed it, I was kind of looking, you know, because in the last issue, you know, I talked about how this book finally feels like it has some focus. And I feel, I don't think it lost that, this issue. But the last one, you know, we had the Captain Britain Corps show up and be like, oh, well, we knew your Betsy was missing, but we, we haven't really had time to get into it too much and we want to help. I was kind of hoping you know, for a multi-part story of them tracking Betsy down, and I don't know what's going to happen, but it kind of feels like she's already back, and we're going to move on. (laughs) But maybe the body that shows up is not completely Betsy, or maybe something still has to happen, you know, in that story, but, um, that part was a little weird. Um, but Gambit was nice and fun, you know, he didn't do a whole lot in this issue, um, you know, he, he moves the cats and professes his love for cats. And he has a really cool scene of throwing cards, and that's about it. Um, but I do love the way Toe draws Gambit with his design. I really love this design, and that's fun. Um, overall, I think I'm going to give it Scalibur 17, a pretty solid 4 out of 6 claws. I like this book is definitely still on the upswing from my enjoyment from it previous previous to Ten of Swords. Um... So, yeah, other other than that, I think it's pretty good. So, wow, I went a lot longer than I thought today. (laughs) So, hopefully you enjoyed this episode. Um, Yeah, next up will be a very cool flashback episode with uh, Dylan and Regina from House of X. Very much looking forward to that. Uh, In fact, from the time this drops, it's probably only a few days away. So, definitely enjoy that. And otherwise, um, for the podcast that goes snicked, you can, of course, like the Facebook page and Twitter is at snickcast. So, as always, guys, please stay well and stay safe out there. And that's going to do it. So until next time, hugs and snicks, y'all. All right. Bye-bye. And snacked. <laughs>